Romans chapter number one. Today is uh, 4th of July weekend, and uh, I want to talk with you this morning just in a, in a, uh, uh, a, a broad manner. I titled today, The Real Declaration of Independence. And again, we celebrate uh, the 4th of July. July 4, 1776, Congress voted in favor of independence from Great Britain, actually July 2nd but did not actually complete the process of revising the Declaration of Independence until on the 4th. And we understand that. We understand the history of it. We understand that the, the, the founding um, fathers of this country were, were set, sending a Declaration of Independence across the pond to the king, and they send this over to declare independence. Now, I'll be honest with you. The Declaration of Independence is not the Constitution. People quote the Declaration like it is, and it isn't. It's a what? It's a declaration, and it's a declaration of independence. And when you think about Romans 1, again, Romans, the first epistle of the Apostle Paul, he makes a declaration here. And I was thinking about it this week as, as you see all the stuff happening with the Supreme Court and making the decisions that they made and they're making the decisions because that's the law of the land. It isn't political. It isn't we don't like you, this or that. It's the law of the land. And it got, just got me to thinking about the real declaration here, if you will, of independence. And it's the declaration of God. And, and, and you need to understand that the Godhead loves freedom. They love volition. They love accountability. If you have freedom, you have accountability. That's what they, they go together. You can't have one without the other because eventually what happens is, is if you just think you just have freedom, then, then that freedom works itself into tyranny. But when you have accountability, now we can leave freedom there. In Genesis 1, when God created man, actually 1-1, when God created heaven and earth, God, he was taking a chance. Because what is he going to do with man? He's going to give man volition, the ability to make a decision and be held accountable. And in that decision, what was God allowing for man to do what? Make a bad decision. And man did, see. Well, that's okay. I have another man coming, the real Adam, the real man, the son of man coming, and he'll make the right decisions and show humanity that. But in all of that, so God loves freedom. He loves liberty. Galatians 5, we have liberty in Christ. And he enjoys that because it's in that mode of freedom, of liberty, that we come and serve and worship him. And he doesn't, he doesn't want you to come with a dagger to you to get you to do it. No, he wants you to come willingly out of love and manifestation and motivation and so forth. So in the declarations here, when God is de declaring, the Apostle Paul in chapter 1 of Romans, in just verse 7, and again, we're just dropping in here because Paul is going to reveal this declaration to us. This declaration is nowhere else found in Scripture. This declaration is only revealed to us and man manifest through the, through the message and the, the ministry given to the Apostle Paul by God uh, the Son, but also God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. Here's the plan. And what does he say? To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. And that's the declaration. The declaration for the very first time to the world is now grace and peace. If you come over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, I was going to run you through all the references. I gave you that list. They're in parentheses. He starts every one of his epistles with this proclamation, this declaration of grace and peace, because it is the official attitude of the Godhead toward the world, toward all of humanity. The official view, the way that God, the Godhead, looks at the world is grace and peace. That's the declaration here. In in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, you'll notice he'll say there in verse 2, Unto Timothy, my son, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And in Timothy and Titus and Philemon, he uses mercy in there, grace, mercy, and peace, because now not only is grace and peace the attitude of God to the world, but when that local assembly who is out there doing and maintaining and preaching and teaching and doing the work of the, and standing for the truth, there's some mercy that needs to be involved in there because what's going to come? All of the tribulation, all of the, the, the fiery darts of the devil, all of that's going to come, and so there needs to be some mercy there. But that issue here of grace and peace, that is the official attitude of God the Father and his rejected son toward the world. Because what has the world done to God the Son? They've rejected him. They rejected him in, 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 in his earthly ministry when he comes and he dies on the cross. But then they also reject him, and when you and I speak and talk about him and think about the gospel and giving the gospel, so he's rejected. He's he's on exile. When he ascended up, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So there's some things going on here a little deeper, deeper than what the commentaries say when you look up grace and peace, you see. They'll say, well, grace is the lighthearted Greek greeting. And peace is the weightier Hebrew greeting. Now, how did that help you? Not at all. And if you know anything about studying, the, if, come over, if you know anything about Pauline writing and how he writes and teaches and everything, he's not going to waste words like that. So grace and peace has nothing to do with the Greek and has nothing to do with the Hebrew shalom and all that stuff. Now, they may be that in the Greek, but that's not what Paul's after. Paul is, there's something heavier here. There's something deeper here than all of that. He comes in and he says, it's, the reason it's there is because it's the official attitude of the Godhead toward the world today. And when you think about what was, you come over to Revelation 19. Think about what the condition of the world was when God appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And instantly you get an understanding that, hey, grace and peace is something a little deeper than just, hey, how you doing, shalom, and all that nonsense. Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Just just want to run some things with you, and then we'll be done, and we'll go home, and you can cook, do whatever you're going to do. I'm getting in the swimming pool. 
And we'll be back here at 6. Okay? But anyway, look at Revelation 19. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and obviously John speaking here, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now this is a reference to the second coming of the Lord, obviously. And when he comes to the earth again to set up his kingdom, he comes to do what? Judge and make war. See? No grace and peace. Again, with Paul, for the very first time, do we hear that the attitude and the thought process of Godhead is grace and peace? See, what is the attitude and the thought of God in time past as well as in the ages to come? Judge and make war. Judgment is the opposite of grace. War is the opposite of peace. So when you think about what Paul's doing here, Paul is catching on to, here's the attitude of God here in Romans 1. Now, as we're going to lay out where the heathen live and how the heathen think and how the heathen operate and how the, 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 I always call the guy the Boy Scout because he's doing right no matter what. You know, the the moralizer, they call it, and and some of the, how he's going to be and how the Jew is today. And And what do we conclude? They're all sinners. So what do they deserve? Wrath and judgment. That's what they deserve. But no, we're going to start with a proclamation of grace and peace. Come over to Psalms chapter 2. Back to Psalms chapter 2. And it's very fascinating when you go into this and you look at this declaration of independence, this declaration of freedom, this declaration here that God's going to make now in the age of grace. Psalms chapter 2, verse 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? In Acts chapter 4, this passage is quoted as a reference to the cross of Christ and what's going on about him and happening to him. We'll get over there in just a minute. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, so what is man? what are they going to do? What are they doing? They're setting themselves against who? The Lord, Jehovah, God, the Father, and his anointed, his son, Christ, will have neither one of them. They're coming in now, and they're setting themselves. They're denying, they're, they're declaring war on God and his son, his rejected son. Why did the heathen, why, well, what did they do? Verse 3, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Again, just hold on to Psalms. Run over to Acts 4. I, I said that. Now I'm thinking about Acts 4. Hold on to Psalms 2. Look at Acts 4. Acts, Acts 4, verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. This is Peter. Uh, Peter and John have been released. And when they heard that, they, that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said. Here's Psalms 2. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? 
The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. What are they doing? They're declaring war on God the Father and on God the Son. See? All right, hold on to Acts. Go back to Psalms 2. Look at verse 4. So in the first three verses, what's man doing? We don't want it. We don't like to retain God in our knowledge. We're rejecting all of that. So what is the answer? What's the reply? Verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> you think you num, num, <laughs> you little numbskulls down there, you think you're something? Yeah, right. You, you little grasshoppers down there, Isaiah, you know, grasshoppers. You, you guys think you're something? The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his grace and peace. No, not at all. What's he going to speak to them in? Wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. You see, the, what's the official declaration of the Godhead there in Psalms 2? War, judgment, wrath. Not grace and peace. Now, come on over to Acts 2. Because Peter's going to pick this up in Acts 2. Because what's happened here? Where are we historically in Acts 2? We're after the resurrection. We have the ascension in chapter 1. We have the day of Pentecost come and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on that believing remnant at the moment. There they are. And then Peter stands up. They begin to speak in tongues, and people are marvelous. How in the world is this going on? Peter begins to stand and to answer that and to deal with it. Verse 16, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my... Uh, in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know what he just quoted? He just laid out what's going to happen here. You know why we're speaking in tongues? Because Joel said it, and Joel said when that happens, the next thing that's coming is wrath and and vexation here and judgment. See, there's some wrath coming your way. Now, drop down to verse, well, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being determined delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So Peter's nailing them, indicting them, written indictment. You know what you deserve, Israel? You know what you deserve, world, through Herod and Rome and the government, that the picture? You deserve wrath. You deserve judgment. Now look across the page at verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, talking about David, 
that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither uh, his flesh did see corruption. So why was Christ raised? To sit on David's throne, kingdom, government. What does a king do? He rules. He, he reigns. What's he going to do? Psalms 2. He's going to come back in wrath and vex him with his sore displeasure. He's not coming back to say, hey, how you doing? D did I hurt your feelings today? See, He's not saying that at all. He's coming back to pour out his wrath. Now, drop down to verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens. But he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, Psalms 110, verse 1, sit, on, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, now watch, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord, verse 20, what's he going to do? He's going to judge you. He's the judge. It's the great and notable day of the Lord comes. And you search that and study that out. And he's not coming back, you know, riding on a unicorn, floating along, going, woohoo, everything. He's coming back in Revelation 19, 11, to pour out some wrath. He's going to be Christ. That's verse 30, the Savior, the, the one that's going to sit on the throne and rescue Israel. By, by the way, come back there to Psalms 110. Keep, keep a hold of Acts 2 because it's an interesting thing what, what Peter does in quoting Psalms 110. 110. 110 verse 1. 110 verse 1. Peter, he, 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 he says something a little different in Acts 1. I'm sorry, Acts 2. Psalms 110 verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. But notice he says, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now look at Acts 2 and look at what Peter says, verse 35. Until I make thy foes thy footstool. You see how he changed it from enemies to foes, because an enemy is not always a foe. See, an enemy can take a break. We call it uh, cease firing. We're going to cease fire for Christmas. So we stop, and then they lob them in on Christmas Day. You know, gotcha. You, you cease fire. That's what an enemy can do. But a foe never does that. A foe never stops. They're always going to be the thorn in the side. They're always going to be the, I mean, if you think about the Revolutionary War, which came a few little bit after the Declaration of Independence, you know, they, the, the British in, in, the hist, in, the, in Britain's historical account, they often commented about the militia and the rebels and how they could never catch them and get them in one spot. They were always guerrilla warfare, it became called. And they literally fought within the, you know, they didn't look like, you know, red coats versus the blue coats. Now, the Constitutional Army did, I get that. But the thing is, is there was always that, that's a foe. A foe's always there, always agitating you. 
So in, in leave Psalms, come to Acts 2. So Peter, he is looking at the situation. He's got full understanding of the Old Testament at the, now, Luke, 2, 4, or, uh, Luke 24, 45. He's got full understanding about the things pertaining to the kingdom. He sees all of that going. He's just in chapter 1 said, we're only 11, we need 12. And they got Matthias. Matthias is the 12th apostle. It's set. Now we're ready to go. And, we're, and he's a full understanding that when the Lord said, occupy until I come, he understands occupation, job. We got a job to do. We got to get that little flock up and running and full steam and full measure. And we're going. And he knows he's in full aware of that. And he makes a reference to the Lord coming, sitting until what? I make your foes your footstool. He understands that Christ has ascended up into the third heaven, up into the throne room of the Father. He understands that. And he's sitting until his enemies, his foes, are made his footstool. And we all understand what a footstool is. By the way, it's not a divan where you prop your feet up. You know what you do on a footstool? You stand on it. You step on it. You crush it. The other day, come over to Acts 7. The other day I was out in the garage and the footstool went out from underneath. I was, I was on the side of the house. And the footstool went out from underneath me and I landed on the lawnmower. That was a pleasant uh, reaction, <laughs> you know. But, well, what happened? The, the footstool, well, actually it was a little two-step ladder. But I'm like, oop, it slipped. You know, and by the way, that went to goodwill because <laughs> we were done, you know, uh, enough of that. So somebody else can slip on it, exactly. Glad you caught that, brother. All right, good deal. Look at Acts chapter 7, okay? Again, what is, the, what is the official proclamation here by Peter? What's the declaration of Peter and the Godhead? War's coming. Wrath is coming. It's time. You're going to sit here until your enemies are made your footstool, until they're foes, and until it's time for you to come back and wipe them out. They don't have a lot of time. It's only a year. They, they, they're working on a schedule. They know what's coming. They know the bombs are dropping next week, and we're on. Let's get going. Let's go. We've got to go, go, go. They're, they're, they're not Bible ignorant. Stephen, Acts 7. Stephen stands up, verse 1. Then said the high priest, are these things so? And he said, men and brethren, and fathers, hearken. He stands up. If you look back up into chapter 6, verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. It's interesting that Philip and the other guys listed are not said that. Stephen is. Because now Stephen stands before that Sanhedrin, that council of Israel, and he's going to make the ultimate declaration that's going to bring that war and judgment to a crescendo, to now it's time to hit the red button. It's time to go. And he goes after the leaders of Israel with a history lesson, no less. And he gets them down there, and he gets down to verse 51. <laughs> Ye stiff-necked 
and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Whew, that's not a nice thing to say to these guys. Because uncircumcision in Israel's religion was they were cut off. They're not my people. Go back to Genesis 17 and see what an uncircumcised individual is called. It's not, they're not God's people. And Stephen just called them what? You're not God's people. You are heathen. You're one of the nations out there now. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Whoa, well, he's a man full of the Holy Ghost, didn't he? And what did he just say? You're resisting my words to you. You're resisting the exhortation that judgment's coming and wrath is coming. And you're not, you guys got to get it right. You got to repent. The kingdom, it's right here. It's ready. He's literally offering them the kingdom. It's right there, guys. And you, you're resisting. You're resisting. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now. Look at that. Notice that. Now. When? When he declared them uncircumcised in heart and ears. When he declared them heathen, pagans, you're just another nation now in God's view. It's time for the notable day of the Lord to come and wipe you out. Woo. Boy, what a declaration. Who hath received, verse, uh, the end of verse 52, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. See how they, you, you remember on the cross the Lord said, Father, forgive them for they know not. He changed the indictment from murder to manslaughter. Peter says, you murdered him. You're murderers. The authority of the chief of the apostle changed it from manslaughter back to murder. That allows God to exercise full wrath and judgment because they're not innocent. They didn't do it on ignorance. Now they're doing it in blind unbelief. Stephen's doing the same thing. He's laying it in. You guys have no, there's no escape clause for you now. Who has received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. You broke the law. You're, you're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. When they heard these things, they loved on him and took him out for lunch. No, yeah, grace and peace, nothing. No, not at all. What'd they do? They, they were cut to the heart. That's like those guys back there in Acts chapter 2, sirs, what must we do? They were pricked at their heart. The conviction has got them. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. Boy, that is brutal. That's brutality. Literally chewing on the guy. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfast into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, what? Standing on the right hand of God. He's no longer sitting. Acts chapter 2, he's going to sit until the foes are made footstool. Now in Acts 7, what's he doing? He's standing. Why? We're echoing. Uh-oh. There we go. I, that was weird. It's still on? 
Okay. He's learning. All right, there we go. Okay. What's he doing? What's he? He's standing. Okay. He's ding. That's all, that's all right. That's pretty good. Hey, it's just us. I mean, you know. He's standing. He sat down. Now he's standing. And when you come into the scriptures, by the way, in verse 56, he says, or verse 55, I saw the glory of God. When Stephen looked up into the heavens, he sees Michael and the armies of God, the glory of God, ready to come back and pour out wrath and judgment. Because notice that little word, and. So he sees this, and he sees Jesus, what? Standing. See that? Two things he sees. So we come back to Isaiah quickly. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. In the prophetic scriptures, when the Lord stands, it signifies some things. Isaiah 2, we're just going to jump in here. We're talking about the, the verse 12, the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Okay, the end of verse 17, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Verse 19, when, the end of the verse, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Verse 21, the end, when he arises to shake terribly the earth. What's he going to do when he stands up? It's time to pour out the wrath. Now, look across the page at chapter 3, verse 13. The Lord standeth up to plead and standeth to judge the people. Clear statement. What's he going to do? He's going to do exactly what he said in Psalms 2. I got him. I got him right where I want him, and I'm going to... Pour it out on them. Go back there to Acts 7. You see, he's, there's no ambiguity here. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen sees the Lord standing, it is time for him to pour out his wrath. It is, it's time for him to come. That's why in, in Acts 7, verse 60, Stephen will say, and he, the Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. What's the sin there? It's not them being sinners. It's a sin, singular. What is it? It's Matthew 12 and the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. What have they done? They killed John the Baptist, a picture of the Father. They killed the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the Son. And now they're killing the Holy Spirit and Stephen. And he says, don't let this hope be held against them. And you know what? It is too late. They're guilty. It can't be undone. You go back in the Old Testament in the law and you study out that law of innocence and where they do stuff and they're innocent in it, they're, they're ignorant of it, you only get a claim at one time in your life. It's not an ongoing. Ignorance of the law is no defense. So guess what? Rather than pouring, what's, it's time to do what? Pour out of wrath. So you got chapter uh, 8, you got the Philip go off and he deals with the guy from Samaria. So the northern tribes are ready to go. Then you come over here and you deal with the Ethiopian. So the Gentiles are ready to go, but Jerusalem isn't. 
Jerusalem sits in darkness. Nobody there but the 12. Everybody, all of Israel is scattered. Why? Because wrath is coming. It's time for the judgment. It's time for the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel to come to pass and to be happening. It's time for wrath and war and vengeance. Acts chapter number 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters. And off we go. And then all of a sudden, there in, chapter, in verse 4, uh, verse 3, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Notice it's not, I'm pouring out wrath, Saul. You better run. Or I'm going to get you. It's what? He interrupted that, didn't he? He interrupts that program. He interrupted that prophetic part of the prophetic program that says it's now time for you to stand and to pour out your wrath and to pour out your judgment and to vex them in your sore displeasure. It's time for that. He didn't do that. Rather, what does he do? He interrupted that. And he reached down here, and in Acts 26, you go over there, and you understand from Acts 26 that on the road to Damascus was not only was the conversion of Paul and the call and the commissioning of the Apostle Paul. He got it all right here, right there. He sees what he calls as my gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He gets it right there. Where's the wrath? Where's the judgment? It's been what? Interrupted. And now there's a new declaration, never declared before, of grace and peace. You see, when Paul says grace and peace, he's making a big reference, a, a draw your attention to, hey, God's changed his attitude toward the world. What was it before? It was wrath and judgment. And now it's grace and the offer of peace to all of mankind. Come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, the, 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 the real declaration of independence is right here with the Apostle Paul. When he declares the attitude now is going to be grace and peace. And what Paul's apostleship in ministry and message and that uniqueness, it, he is, is involved with the message that he, that has interrupted the prophetic program. I told you 2 Corinthians, right? Look over at Romans 11. Sorry, you're on your way. You see, it's through the Apostle Paul and him alone that we understand that the prophetic program, which was war and wrath and judgment, has been interrupted. And that causes God's attitude toward the world to change to grace and peace. That's why it's called the dispensation of grace. What's he dispensing? Giving out grace. See. Romans 11, if you look there just real quick at verse 15, for if the casting away of them and that's going to be Israel, the prophetic program. Be the reconciling of the world. Reconciling. 
not, it, it's talking about rec- the word reconcile to change the, uh, the relationship, to, to fix the relationship. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about a status change in the world. The only way that he could go to Saul of Tarsus on the road and convert him was to change the program. Because dispensationally, Matthew chapter number 12, Saul of Tarsus had no chance in hell to get out of hell. He's done. God changes the program, reaches down in Acts chapter 9, saves him on the road to Damascus into a what? A new situation, a new program. He couldn't do it over here under Israel. He's done, he's done, he's consenting to the death. He's participated in it. He's done. He is apostate. That, by the way, that's why Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul talks with such heartaches about Israel. Because he knows he was the chief of sinners. He knows he was leading them in that rebellion against God and God's people. Now he knows better. And it, boy, it tugs at him. My heart's desire is that Israel would be saved. 2 Corinthians 5. You see, the declaration now, God has declared a day of grace and peace. Man, what a declaration that is. You look at the world about us today, and what, what is their attitude about God? He hates me. He hates me. If God loved me, he wouldn't let that happen to me. Why do bad things happen to good people? Wah, 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 wah. Why? Because they need to escape. They've got to have somebody to blame. No honesty in any of it. There's no honesty in religion, period. God says, no, 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 no. I loved you so much that I died for you. And now I would have you come to that that event of Calvary free and clear of having to do anything. Just trust me. Just believe me. 2 Corinthians 5, here it is, verse 19. What a declaration to wit that God, was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. All right, stop there. Where was he reconciling the world to himself? Where? In Christ. See? Not over here going, ah, I think we'll just do this. No, I got a plan. Ephesians 1.10. I got a plan and a purpose for the, for the out there in the future where my son is to head over all the things in the heaven and in the earth. And it's time to do this now. I've got them right where I could whack them, but instead I'm going to grace them. <laughs> grace and peace. The world, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a declaration now. As ambassadors, what is our message? Grace and peace. Our our message isn't the nonsense that you hear in the world. Pick a conspiracy theory. That's not your job. 
That's a distraction. That's a pull you away from. What, what's my job? Grace and peace. You know why? Because he was made to be sin for you and that we might be made righteous. Now I'm in Paul's gospel. Now I'm over here in right division, drawing the distinctions between. See, the ambassadors, you know what, a, folks, you understand what a grace period is, right? You got a credit card bill? Say, shake your head yes. Okay, thank you. You get a grace period on that. You get 20-something days to get it paid, blah, blah, blah. You understand what that is, you, but you still owe the money, don't you? Yeah. The world, when it says here, not imputing their trespasses, the world isn't getting away with anything. The great white throne judgment will fix their little red wagon. You don't have to worry about that. That's why Romans 12, he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. It's come. But in the moment, you, I'm, I know what it is. In the moment, we want them to get it. Get them, get them now. Get them good. But they're going to get it out there. What's our message? Grace and peace. When it says he's not imputing their trespasses, if he imputed their trespasses to them today, you know what he has to pour out? Wrath and judgment. That's where the world is. But he doesn't. He makes a declaration of independence. He makes a declaration of, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look at you with the eyes of grace and peace. During the per this period of grace, a day of grace, God says, you know what? The world owes a debt. They're going to pay it. But I'm going to give them something that they don't deserve, but it's something they need. And I'm going to give them a day of grace. And I'm going to make known through the church, my body, the Apostle Paul, other ambassadors. The world is guilty. They owe the debt. but I'm declaring amnesty because my son paid the debt. That's why he's always grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an official declaration. Here's my attitude now, guys. Here's my attitude, world. Not victim, not woe is me, knock that mess off, but what? Grace and peace. Here's Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified, we have what? Peace with who? With God. The enmity is gone. The debt has been paid. By the way, also, you keep reading there in Romans, and you know what we find out? We're free from sin, the activity. That's Romans 1 to 5. He took care of it. Then we learn that we're free from sin, the root. That's Romans 6. Then we find out Romans 7, we're free from the law. We don't have, we're under grace, not the law. Then in Romans 8, we find out we're free from the, the flesh and the, and the guiles of the flesh. We're freed from that. What freedom? Romans 12, we learn that we're freed now to go serving as we ought. And it came because of the declaration of, grace and peace 
that official proclamation of the attitude of God during the dispensation of grace right now is this, and not war and judgment. When the colonists sent the letter to to the king, it was to declare war. If you don't do this, we're rebelling, we're war. God says, you can't do it. I did it for you. And you know what the message is? You know what our message ought to be? As we go out into a wicked world, perverse world, is that God loves you, grace and peace. And we shouldn't forget that original declaration. By the way, he had that declaration before the foundation of the world. Paul in Ephesians takes us back before the beginning of, before the Genesis 1-1. And we ought to be mindful of that as we interact and deal with people. That, hey, what do they need? They need to know that God loved them. He loves them, not past tense. And it sits, the demonstration of that sits at Calvary. They believe that. They trust that. Now look at what he's done with you. He has set you free. I guess we would be remiss in not reading Galatians 5 verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And man, we can go another hour there. We won't. I know it's a fourth. I know we all have different ideas and everything, and we do different things. Linda and I have been to two Fourth of, fourth of July parties already. Ooh, okay. When the kids were around, we never went anywhere. Now we're getting invited out. So, woo, you know. Should have kicked the kids out earlier. (laughs) I know we have all of that, but let's not forget this, that original declaration of grace and peace. And by the way, mercy. Mercy to those that have to now, let's go do the work. And that issue of mercy is such so tremendous within the local church ministry. But don't forget the original grace and peace. That's what we ought to be proclaiming to people. Not whether the sky's blue and the earth is purple or whether this or that. All that stuff means nothing. It goes away. It's a waste of time. And we're to be redeeming the time. And you have to be careful what you let seep into that thick head of yours. And mine. Okay? All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the declaration of the attitude of the Godhead now being grace and peace. And, Lord, we know one day, as long as you tarry, we're here and we have work to do, and that's our proclamation. And we understand that one day you will come back and call your ambassadors home, and then you will pour out your wrath and your judgment righteously on this evil world. And we leave that into your hands. And Lord, I just pray for us today that we would go in our own lives, in our own situations, with a step in our in our in, in a spring in our step with an understanding of the the totality of the grace and peace that we've experienced so that others can experience it as well. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I would say let's stand and be dismissed with the song.